So I'm really just kind of asking for the baseline and then we can get to like, you know, the, the pretty fancy stuff. But can we just at least know, you know, how many women are diagnosed and why are they diagnosed and what are their treatment options? And for a long time, we didn't even have that information. Welcome to FemPower Health. This is Georgie. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Tanika Gray, the inspiring force behind the White Dress Project. Tanika is not just an advocate. She's a beacon of hope for those battling uterine fibroids and quite frankly, the entire healthcare system. Today, she shares her own powerful journey and the valuable insights she's gathered from working closely with patients. While our focus is on fibroids, Tanika's messages resonate far beyond, offering guidance to anyone navigating the complex healthcare system. Our conversation is raw, real, and reflective of the stories that touch our hearts. So if you're seeking connection, understanding, and expertise straight from the heart, Join us as we dive deep into the world of patient advocacy with Tanika Gray. And if you'd like more information on uterine fibroids specifically, check out our show notes. Now let's get real and learn together. How are you? I know you had surgery and there's a lot of stuff going on. So I just wanted to check in how you are. Yeah, I appreciate you doing that. I, You know, it's a day by day. I have a really good therapist. I have a really supportive husband. I have good friends. But there's still that feeling of like, how am I still here? I'm the advocate. I shouldn't be here. You know, like those kind of, I don't know, privileged thoughts maybe, but also very real thoughts for me. Um, I felt like I could have maybe advocated my way out of this or, you know, I know all the things to say. I have doctors on speed dial. I can text all the greatest doctors in, you know, for fibroid treatment. And yet I'm still very lost in terms of uh, just figuring out what next can be done to allow um, someone like me to have more of a voice, more stories like mine to be told, and so that people who are managing life with fibroids don't have to be in this position um, where they're dealing with this for years on end. For me, what I'm what I've recognized is that I've been through um, fibroids at so many different intervals of my life, you know. So even as a young woman coming into uh, adulthood and womanhood, then as a career woman, um, then as a wife, as a friend, so all the ways I um, title myself, fibroids has been there. And I just think that's an interesting conversation because in each of those roles, you play something different, right? So how do you show up in each of those roles with fibroids? Um, My first myomectomy, um, I had this very similar thought, and that's how the White Dress Project got started. My second myomectomy was not as invasive because they, they didn't take out as many fibroids. I thought again, like, but I was in the midst of white dress projects. I was like, okay, this is my work. Now this third one, and we're coming up on the 10th year anniversary of the white dress project. I'm just like, wait, hold on (laughs) 10 years. So that means I've been talking about this for 10 years, which means that I've been in the entire time I've been a patient 
So I think that all settled in. And I think when you are home recovering, all of those things that are happening in your body to allow your body to heal, blend with your emotions. And I'm reading some books right now that talk about the intersection of emotion and your physical being. And the more and more I read, the more and more I'm learning that they are very far Mm -hmm. from um, being separated. They're very close, I should say. And I just don't know why we're not talking about that more and really have done quite the opposite in culture, which is personified and gotten this message out there that they are so separate. So yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying I'm good today and I don't ever really get poor or really down because I can't lose hope. I just can't. Right. I hear you on that. What is your hope? My hope is that I'll be a mother or that I am a mother. My hope is that um, uterine fibroids and not only uterine fibroids, but reproductive health issue will issues will really be taken seriously is not even enough of a word. It doesn't have enough uh, grit to it, but just highlighted, recognized, um, delved into, investigated, like all the verbs that we can find that would showcase care and that we believe that this is a public health issue. So whatever needs to happen, where that is the ingrained thought in our legislators, in our physicians, in our clinicians, in our pharmaceutical companies, in our medical device companies, whatever it is that needs to happen that says this is a public health issue, this is something that's happening to women, this is something that's happening disproportionately to Black women, Whatever the middle is in in between there, that's what I want to get to. So that's my hope. You know, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and they said um, that maybe it's too late for me. She had had five myomectomies and just kept having myomectomies because she didn't want to have a hysterectomy. And she was like, you know, it's probably too late for me, but I literally don't want my nieces to go through this. I don't want my cousin to go through this. And I have hope that there will be more people that will have that desire to ensure that that's where we get to. You know, this is an interesting way to start because we're talking about what's needed. And so maybe we back up a bit and talk about how did we get here today? And not not like a women's history aspect, but like what is going on with fibroids that there's still much we don't know. Um, because as you pointed out, like you're, you're the advocate and look at how much you're struggling. And so dear world, (laughs) if the advocate can't get an answer, we've got a problem. And so let's start with, you know, how prevalent fibroids are. I mean, at the end of the day, most of us, by the time we're 50 are going to have fibroids, correct? So this affects all of us and disproportionately black women And by the way, do we know why? So we don't know why, but there there are a host of theories out there that suggest um, there's something in our our genetic makeup. There, you know, there's talk around the chemicals that we use in our hair. 
there's talk around the foods that we digest. Um, but a lot of it doesn't make sense to me because there are white women that have chemically relaxed their hair. There are white women who don't eat well and eat fatty foods, etc. There are white women who have high estrogen. There's that, but the genetic uh, disposition that I've heard that theory on, um, that's a take as well. But once again, the funding is not there um, to really support that science or support that research. Um, so honestly, we don't know. But, but it, it, it has been proven in literature and just from clinical trials and data that Black women get fibroids. Um, they grow larger. Their bleeding is more severe. They're more likely to be offered hysterectomy and have hysterectomy. So yeah, those things are very prevalent. So this is this is definitely not to say that white women, Asian women, Latino ex women don't get fibroids because they absolutely do. And anyone with a uterus can get some type of fibroid, right? Not if you have a uterus, you will have fibroids, but if you have a uterus, you you can, you know, have the symptoms of uterine fibroids. This is a woman's thing. But the subtitle is also that this disproportionately impacts Black women. So there's something to be said as to why ours are growing larger, why we're having more symptoms, and why we're being offered hysterectomy. So, you know, add it to the list, Georgie, of <laughs> all the things that, that need to be figured out, which is, which is a large part of my frustration, like there is, there are certain things that are we that we're doing in this country, as a culture, as a society that are just so mind blowing. Just just some of the technologies and things that we've been able to do even in the last five years, and some of the stuff that we're asking um, to be investigated, not only for women's health, but just for or I should say not only for reproductive health, but just for women's health in general, seems so like archaic. Like we just decided that this is where the energy needs to go and the funding needs to go, then this is not anything we can't accomplish is what I'm saying. So when you were saying that there's a lot of things that are being done that are so archaic, and by the way, for those listening who, if you're a a patient, you're probably listening because you're fed up. You might be a clinician. You might be someone who wants to build a startup in women's health. I think regardless of your perspective, understanding this will be helpful because at the end of the day, we don't want to feel alone if we're the patient. And by hearing how complicated this is, it kind of is like, oh, okay, so it's not me. And it's really about the, the self-advocacy, um, which I know your organization um you know, does a lot with, which I want to make sure we cover as well. But just going back to this archaic way, like what, what in your view is so archaic that we could easily change with the tools and technology we have to date? What, what is missing? Well, I think the, the, I'll start with um, the simple question of if we know that fibroids impacts women the way they do, and impacts Black women disproportionately, that first answer is, is, that first question is something that we haven't answered yet either. Like, why are fibroids disproportionately impacting Black women? So I think what needs to happen immediately 
is a level of research that I'm no scientist, right? I'm no researcher, but there, I feel like there are just some baseline things that we don't know, like the, the impact on Black women. What is the impact on Asian women? What is the impact on um, Latino women? And I think just those understanding how the disease is impacting bodies, regardless of race, is something to me that is not necessarily elementary, um, but for me, it's just like a baseline of where we are. There, there have been a lot of improvements in terms of treatment options for uterine fibroids, but those that are still on the surgical route are still pretty invasive. Yep. And it, it, they're still, you know, it's still considered a huge surgery. So I just, I just feel like there's some baseline research things that we don't know, we don't understand. The, the relation between uterine fibroids and fertility is just like gray area all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the relationship between fibroids and PCOS, fibroids and endometriosis, fibroids and adenomyosis, all of those things, I just feel like are, and you know, I'm no scientist, right? So maybe they're not baseline, but I just, in my, in my lay view, I just feel like there are so many other things, especially in oncology and especially in heart disease, that there are just so many, so many more um, nuanced things that we know and details and data that we have that we just haven't invested in women's health. So I'm really just kind of asking for the baseline and then we can get to like, you know, the, the pretty fancy stuff, but can we just at least know, you know, how many women are diagnosed and why are they diagnosed and what are their treatment options? And for a long time, we didn't even have that information. So I think it's just something that is, um, you know, just we don't need to invest in that research for whatever reason, um, because partially, I think it's because there's a disproportionate impact on Black women. I think in this country overall, we just have a tainted view of women's health and, and what deserves to be discussed. It's interesting because, you know, you were talking about that we're not really looking at the impact on the diversity um, impact of uterine fibroids. However, what's also interesting is it, I feel like it wasn't that long ago, maybe by now it has been a while where, you know, we weren't even really looking at clinical trials and how drugs even impact women versus men. (laughs) And now we're trying to go to the next layer deep. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The FDA mandated women partake in clinical trials since 92, which is when I got really interested in in all of this because I actually wrote a paper about it. But, you know, the execution on that has been difficult. And I've, you know, been to conferences where women researchers have apologized on stage for not researching women's health because they're rewarded by how fast, how many research papers they publish, which means they have to do them quickly, which means quick clinical trials, which means not women. And even there's some books out there, which hopefully I can interview one of the authors around how even AI is becoming biased because it's all around what you feed into it. So there's a lot of complexities that you're right, people have to be thoughtful about. And, And I am seeing change happening and it's coming in some wonky ways 
um, as a consultant, like I would love to be able to go in and build this like strategic plan of what are the, the dots that are connected for women's health. And as a result, what questions do we know versus not? And then thoughtfully put the research together because it is complicated and, and answering one question with everyone doing it separately is just going to be so hard because it does take such a long time. I want to understand um, what role they, and they being, you know, members of Congress, just key stakeholders in this area, what they think we can do as patients to ensure that we're a part of the conversation. Because I always say that a patient's story is data, especially with something like uterine fibroids, especially with endometriosis, where there are, and PCOS, where there are variations in how it can show up in your body. You know, we always talk about um, the women who don't have heavy bleeding as a symptom with fibroids, but her pain is so extreme. Or somebody like me who has always had heavy menstrual bleeding, but could manage my pain. So, you know, there are just things and variations that, that these reproductive health issues cause that really, if we took the time to listen to patient stories, um, come up with an anecdotal archive of stories that we could really pull some strong data that could become science, you know, scientific evidence. And I, and I really believe that strongly. And once again, I'm no scientist. However, I just feel that strongly about the power of the patient's story and what people experience with reproductive health. That there's just a story to be told there, and that story can correlate with data in some way. So tell me then the role that you're hoping to, that you are playing with the White Dress Project. It's exactly what I said in terms of how our stories are used. Our organization encourages, and quite frankly, I'm just going to be bold and say, our organization, the White Dress Project, has revolutionized the way that women talk about uterine health, I believe specifically uterine fibroids. And I'm not saying that we weren't talking about it ever before, um, but I feel like having this organization for 10 years, seeing the work that we've done, seeing the transformation on social media, and, and did we do it alone? Definitely not. But I believe we spearheaded and really got women thinking about how they feel and how they're encouraged and how they're part of a community when they tell their story, how they're helping themselves and helping someone else when they tell their story. So when I say there is power in our story, I'm a journalist. And so I have been trained and and taught and fully believe the power of someone's story. And I just don't think we are there in um, our healthcare system. Um, I think that a lot of times as patients, we don't know how to articulate well um, what is happening with us because we don't um, always see that being in the doctor's office and conversing with your physician 
is a two-way street and that you have the the authority to share what's happening in your body. So so those are the things that we do. With these these women, you know, getting together, I guess, what are you, because I agree with you, like sharing stories is so important. It's like I went through a fertility journey and I remember going to resolve the National Infertility Association. And unfortunately, I found out about them towards the end of my journey. Um, and so I'm like, I wish they were here all along because it's helpful to like hear the nuances of what, um, what people can do and their own stories to feel like you're, you're not alone. But what are you finding in these communities um, as far as with like, what have been, has been most surprising to you, I should say, um, as people have had these opportunities for community? I think when I started the organization, I was very surprised to learn that people, um, well, I don't know if it was surprising because I, I was like this, that people just don't want to share. They, they don't want to share um, they feel like it somehow demeans them, you know, um, there's a privacy factor. There's that once again, how, how are people going to view me? What if I cry about this? What if I get emotional about this? Nobody should see me that way. Um, and I think we just put so many um, limits on ourselves when we when we don't share. I do agree though, that you have to be in the right place to share and you have mm-hmm. to see that hope beyond sharing. So I, I'm definitely not criticizing people who don't want to share. Oh, hundred percent. I do feel like I'm, I'm so surprised. I was so surprised by the amount of DMS that we would get that would say, if you started a private group, I'd be happy to share my story, but don't want to put it on Instagram. And and I mean, I, I get that to a certain degree, but the desire is still there to want to talk about it, to be, want to yes. be in community. But I, I, so I will say, I think that one of the things that I was really surprised about was just the interactions that women and people who are managing life with fibroids was having are having with our healthcare system. The amount of people who we hear stories of dismissal of pain offered hysterectomy the first time they were diagnosed, which I was one of those people. I was offered a hysterectomy um, the very first time that I went, not the first time I was diagnosed, but the first time that I was going to see what my treatment options for fibroids were, I was told that I should have a hysterectomy. Um, So I'm just very, very surprised by that in this like technical, technologically advanced age. And there's so much literature now coming out about um, hysterectomy and I, and I'm no doctor, so I don't want to quote it, but hysterectomy and its connection to the brain. And um, the connection to the brain and the impact and the dementia that is caused. You know, so I, I bring that up because there are some connections to hysterectomy that's coming out in literature now that maybe if we knew this 10, 15 years ago, hysterectomy wouldn't be just the number one treatment option. I mean, it, it is surprising. So I interviewed Dr. Juan Camillo, 
Aronia Ferreira, and he was working at Myovant, and now they merged with Sumitomo, and now he is at Organon, which is another women's health pharma company, and he is quite a passionate, he was an OBGYN, and now he's like a chief medical officer, and it was interesting, I had interviewed him and um, Kaylon Taylor Clark, and it was interesting that the ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, just want to say that for those who may not know, they actually put out new guidelines around OBGYNs not being so, not looking at hysterectomies as the first thing, that they should offer more options. And this is not just related to fibroids. This is anything. And what's so interesting is when I try to look for the guidelines, I can't see them. They're not public. And I don't think they're like purposely keeping it secret. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons and like the way, you know, doctors work with how things happen. So I, I'm not at all bringing that up to say it's a secret, but just know it's like, don't try to Google it because you probably won't find it unless it's been released since the last time I looked for it. But, you know, even ACOG is recognizing that sometimes, you know, the the world of clinicians has been too quick to do hysterectomies. I was just going to say, I really a- appreciate that because it, it starts from those agencies and those organizations yes. saying something that then can influence our members of Congress and other stakeholders. There's also some new guidelines um, from, I believe it's ACOG as well, that talks about abnormal uterine bleeding and what is considered normal. And um, now normal is what you think is normal. And if it's disrupting your life, um, maybe that's not normal. And before there was some measurement of- Number of tampons and stuff, yeah. <laughs> exactly, I have no clue, no clue. I do think uh, when those things happen, I do think we need to applaud it because when things aren't going well, we have- um, a critical thought about it. So so since you've had so many women engaged in the community, which is so great that you're building, like what, if, what are you finding from on the ground um, has been working for people? And, and what I really want to focus on is communicating with clinicians. And I don't know if clinicians are also a part of the community, but I'd be curious what doctors wish that women would do. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So like, I guess let's start with, um, let's start with the doctor actually, because we've talked so much about the patient. Let's start with the doctor request. And then I would love to learn what um, women have, like what, what is probably something we wouldn't think of that women would probably want to know that you've learned from your community has been like the aha that's hopefully helped them along their journey. So what does the doctor have to say? You know, we're definitely an organization that loves our physicians, right? We don't, pretend that we don't need them. But we, we also um, have messaging that says that you are your own best health advocate, right? And you are the CEO of your body. So we believe that the physician-patient relationship is a, an equal relationship. And obviously, there is a person who is standing in front of you who has had you know, four years of residency, four years of fellowship, all of that. And their expertise lies there, but you are the expert on your body. So we, so from, from what we've heard from doctors that we partner with all the time, we have an advisory council of doctors. They need us to understand that we cannot come in with the kitchen sink. 
Like it's not the time we need to be able to articulate what is happening in our body. Now, no one says that you have to go in calling a period of menses and menorrhagia and, you know, all the clinical terms. They're not asking for that, but they want more uh, for us to be more specific about the things that are ailing us at that particular time. So that means coming in with your journal of what you ate this week when you're the, you know, to the right of your belly button just started burning. So now they know, okay, that potentially could be a ruptured ovary. That potentially could be a polyp. And I think what I'm hearing from physicians is that there's so much, you know, I don't know, or just the kitchen sink of things that it's hard to come to a resolve um, because there's so many things going on. And on the flip side, when we do that as patients, that's kind of when you get the doctor um, who shuts down and starts writing on the pad or starts on the keyboard or brings their practitioner in because it's just too much going on. They, they're thinking about their next patient. They're thinking about, I don't know what to prescribe. I don't know what to tell you your next steps. And as patients, we have to understand that, that their goal is to get to that as well. And you know, I've been hearing this since I've been doing this podcast. The first person who said it to me was Dr. Allison McGregor. She wrote a book called Sex Matters, and she is an ER doctor by training. And um, she found like even her mother was struggling with you know navigating the healthcare system, and that was her thing: is okay, everyone, we are the expert on our body. The clinician is the expert on the medicine, and we just I feel like we've been so far apart. And I think with women's health, it's even more so because there is so little research. And let's face it, we don't know about our bodies. Like time and time again, I hear, insert something you're suffering with. Um, you go on this journey and then you become an advocate or a founder of a femtech company. It's like that seems to be the path um, or you're both. And, um, or a podcaster like me, um, which I, I plan to do more of, but, um, anyways, so, um, you know, it, it's, it is an interesting journey. And I think all of us recognizing we have a role to play because look, I use the hashtag medical gaslighting, um, as well. And it is a popular one, but it, it seems like there's really a, a role we all have to play in having a good healthcare experience. Absolutely. I, I would argue that it's it's one of our important relationships in life. And I think we yeah. have to look at it as, a, as an important relationship. No, everybody's not going to be a great doctor because they're human. So find your person. I often say finding a good doctor, finding a good therapist is like dating. Like you got to mm. go through a couple of them. And that's okay yeah. because you're worth it. Um, and you need to find someone who understands your style and you understand their style and can communicate to you in a way that is, is effective to you. You know, for a long time, I, I was just like, I need somebody who has had a myomectomy. Like I need a doctor like that because I need them just to understand What's like, like I, not that you can't understand if you haven't had a myomectomy, clearly you can, 
there are plenty of doctors to prove that, but it was what I needed. I needed a, a woman who has been through this, who understands when I say like that churning feeling on the right side of my belly button, you get it. You know, there's this authority figure, the person in the white coat, and we just feel like we can't say anything because we don't know how to talk their lingo. And I think that from the patient side, doctors need to talk more of our lingo sometimes too. Everything doesn't need to be menoraja. You know what I mean? Like everything doesn't need to be two cc's or four cc's or just say a period. You know what I mean? Just, (laughs) just normalize some things for me and yeah, make some things lay. What else have you heard that would be helpful um, from your community, from the, the, the women who've been struggling? What have been some surprising things that have worked for them? Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of things because as I talked about earlier, um, there's so many variations in fibroid stories, but a lot of people have talked about just the components of the, the whole body wellness, right? So really thinking about what mental health plays in this, what uh, nutrition and diet plays in this, what community plays in this. Um, there are so many people who come on our page, come to our events, and who talk about the power in their community and the power in the community that we've created and that they feel like they're a part of it. You can go on our Instagram right now, look through our comments and see how many people talk about um, just how we've gotten them through the journey. And I'm always like, who's we? I'm like, I get it, White Dress Project, but we're a White Dress Project. So we've all gotten each other through the journey of learning what questions to ask, being confident and speaking up, not knowing the terminology to use, but knowing how to effectively describe your symptoms so that a doctor can help. So understanding those things, understanding when you are being dismissed, understanding that you can have an opinion over here, but yes, you can take another PTO day to have another opinion over here and confer with those opinions, take the opinions of of your family members, and then ultimately understand what you want for yourself in the end. We don't always think about it until we've become the advocate and look back. But I think it's those of us need to share it with others. It's like, be clear. You don't have to go into a doctor's office and react. And it's not to say your doctor's going to say something bad. But if you're not clear, how can your doctor best help you if you're all over the place? They want clarity. And then when we come in with all the, ah, then then they don't know how, you know, and that's why I say it's just like any other relationship. If I come home and I'm like, ah, my husband's like, what's going on? So, you know, people match energy, right? So I think that being in community, having conversations, doing research on what your issue is gives you that level of clarity. Now, there's a difference between clarity and being psychic, right? And and just being and just knowing what's going to happen in the future. No. But when I was going to have this third myomectomy, it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my life. And that was because my small intestine was in front of, was attached to my uterus, and there was a fibroid behind the small intestine. So in order to 
um, get that fibroid, my small intestine was going to have to be moved. And Georgie, all these years of advocacy, myomectomy, blah, blah, blah. I was like, wait, you got to do what? Touch the thing that <laughs> like my food goes down and something happens and then it helps me do number two. Like what? Like you can't touch that. And then it became, you know, if depending on how many adhesions you have or how stuck together things are, you know, we may have to cut a piece. Cut? No. <laughs> no. Right. Um, so it became not only a myomectomy, but it became a bowel resection, which it's all good. We're talking about fibroids. I'm familiar. But bowel resection? So for me, that was just the scariest thing. And the only way I made the decision was becoming clear. I had a miscarriage Um, October 20th of 2022. And I just had to be clear. I want the motherhood thing. And do I want to look back and say that I didn't do everything I could? Now, I do believe that there's a point you get to where it becomes difficult to make those decisions. And people who have stopped on the journey, I completely get it. But I knew that the fear of you know, all the things, coloscopy, all those things, something going wrong with my my bladder that was also attached. I also got to try. So it, so my North Star is just wanting to be a mother. That's it. But I didn't want to have another myomectomy ever. So yeah, you can have clarity and still not know what's going to happen or still not be becoming clear. And to your point, about every area of your life really leads to sound decision-making and being confident in your decision. Whether it works out or not is not up to us, but more times than not, as you rightly said, things conspire um, to work out for you. What do we do with social media? Because when you're struggling, you'll do anything to get your goal achieved. And you know, we used to joke in, in the infertility world of like, you know, if they said stand on your head for 10 minutes and you'll have your baby, it will get done. And so, you know, we're in this weird space where, yes, I think we all advocate for clinical trials, but we can't wait for the years to enroll the patient, conduct the trial. What do all of us do in the meantime? And now social media is taking over, but not all of it is factual information well, it's hard to say evidence-based because of all that we had just discussed, but yeah, what's your thought there? And, and let's all clarify, neither one of us are doctors. <laughs> so from a patient advocate perspective who works with doctors, what's your advice? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult one because, you know, I speak from a place where all of this is happening to me currently. You know what I mean? Like I had surgery August 31st, 10 weeks ago. So all of this is happening to me and I go down those rabbit holes. I was telling a girlfriend of mine the other day that, you know, social media, you populate it with kind of what you want to populate it with. Like, but even all the motivational things like get, I'm like, okay, one day God is with me. 
one day you're you're smarter than your fears. What and it's just like all <laughs> all the things and like you're right. So I don't, you know, I've the people I follow and all of that. They're all positive and but I was telling her I was like even that gets overwhelming. Like I find myself mm-hmm. being like, yes, I'm a winner. I can do all things. Like you know, I can dream. And I'm just like, it just becomes all overwhelming. Um, But I think it comes back to clarity again. Knowing who you are, knowing your beliefs, and investing in yourself. Like, I just don't think we um, give enough credence to the power of investing in yourself. And investing in yourself, just like an investment, is a long game. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not a quick fix. So investing in yourself self means research. It means finding the right doctors. It means trying a new diet and seeing what works. It means that if somebody says something over here, you hear it again, there can be triple and double and quadruple checking because there's so much of that that is happening now that is is, you know, this social media world is just rampant with misinformation and you have to believe and have value enough in yourself and want to make the investment in yourself that you say that I can't believe this first account. I want to know more. And even if I am going to believe it, who else is saying it? So it's really, my therapist always says, We got to ask more questions all the time about all the things. Just know our value and our worth more that we're worth the research. You're worth the extra PTO day to go get a second opinion. You're worth um, getting on a plane to fly to a specialist. You're worth it because we do it in so many other areas of our life. You know, there was a time in my life, if a girlfriend was having a birthday, I'm there. I don't care what you want to go out. That's right. I'm there. So I think we just need to have that level of investment in ourselves. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It is, it is both as simple and as complicated as that. (laughs) Right. Right? Exactly. (laughs) Um, But no, I think, I think that's such a fair statement and I think it's, it's such a, a smart way to end on this discussion. And, you know, I would encourage, I mean, first, thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your story and, you know, sharing, like being truthful. This is not, there's no end. There is no like, therefore you've achieved. I mean, I I really appreciate this. And for those who want to know more about uterine fibroids specifically, I would encourage people to go to your website and I'll put that in my show notes. I've also done a couple of interviews on uterine fibroids. So if you want to have more of the scientific data-driven, you know, what where surgery comes into play and all that um, from the doctors, check that out as well. Yes, um, please do. But I really, yeah, so I really appreciate your time and um, and let's keep spreading the word. So I, I think this is just a broader episode on how do you advocate when you just can't find an answer. Yes, absolutely. So. And thank you, Georgie, for all the work that you're doing. I, I find it so admirable when Um, You know, you've had the conversations that you've had with physicians, with clinicians, with researchers. I know Kaylan very well. She's a dear friend of mine. So when you've had all these conversations, but you say to yourself, like, what is what is missing? 
and you seek out the patient voice and know that that is an integral part of the conversation. Um, I really appreciate that because truly you could have wrapped your segment without it, right? Um, but you recognize the importance of the patient voice and, and anyone that understands the power of storytelling and the power of these anecdotal moments. Um, I just really appreciate you understanding that. So thank you for your time as well. Uh, no, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages, ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.